0: As I mentioned last Lord's Day, many Old Testament commentators of the Psalms assume that Psalms 42 and 43 actually were just one Psalm at one time due to their similarities, and the fact that there is no superscription affixed to the top of Psalm 43, a, a kind of title, uh, makes it even more probable that the two Psalms might very well have been just one psalm uh, back in the day. When you study both psalms, you certainly can see some stylistic and literary consistencies. For example, last time when we studied Psalm 42, we read in both verse 5 of the previous psalm, Psalm 42, and in verse 11, these words, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. You see that there in verse 5 and in verse 11 of Psalm 42. And you will find that same refrain in the last line of Psalm 43:5. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. That seems to bracket those two psalms as though they were once together. And it appears in both of these psalms, and certainly in this one psalm of verse Five of Psalm 43. If they were originally combined, the psalmist was longing to be with the people of God for corporate worship in the temple. If the worshipper was separated from either his people and or his homeland, or even perhaps both, having been exiled in a foreign land, he now longs for the day when He's united with the people of God in the holy place where Yahweh was said to dwell so that they might corporately sing again the praises to their God in public worship. Psalms 42 and 43 are indeed laid out very similarly with uh, laments being the main body of the text. That's why Psalms 42 and 43 are called lament psalms. The psalmist is lamenting something, and I outlined Psalm 42 by saying that it had two interweaving aspects to it, the lament itself and then a stop with the hope in God or some other refrain that challenged the psalmist to stop his lament and to again regrip on the character of God. And that's certainly what Psalm 43 does as well. If you remember in Psalm 42, the first of these laments was in verses 1 to 4, and we called it, my soul's desire for God. My soul's desire for God. And then in verse 5, there it is, that hope in God statement. And then he laments again in verses 6 and 7 with my soul's downcast direction. My soul's downcast direction. And then as soon as verses 6 and 7 are over, he then brings himself out of that lament with hope in God. Verse 8 there it particularly says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so he again re-grips on the character of God, specifically there, his his steadfast love. And then, true to form, verses 9 and 10, he goes right back into another lament. My soul's challenge with enemies. So you see his soul's desire for God, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. His soul's downcast direction, verses 6 and 7. His soul's challenge with enemies all around him, verses 9 and 10. And then again, just very consistently, verse 11, hope in God, hoping in God, the God of my salvation. So that's Psalm 42 that we studied last time and right on the heels. Psalm 43, quite similar. The psalmist laments about ungodly people who are presently preventing God's people from worshiping God as they desire, as they ought to be worshiped, as He ought to be worshiped. And according to verse 1, there's a plea from the psalmist for deliverance. Verse 2 further asking Yahweh uh, for that deliverance. Verse 3, sending out both light and truth that we'll study in a moment. And then, again, true to form, He goes all the way through this lament section and then verse 5, because there are only five verses in this particular psalm, hope in God. Hope in God. You see the consistency there? See the pattern? There's There's rhyme and reason to it. Sometimes when we read through the psalms, And especially when you read through the Proverbs, you're reading along, maybe you're doing it each day, you're reading a psalm, or you're reading a Proverbs chapter, and as you read along in such poetic literature, you're saying to yourself, these seem so incredibly random, Uh, especially the Proverbs. Indeed, from Proverbs 10 all the way through Proverbs 31, there are people who say, I see no rhyme or reason to these Proverbs, they just seem to be disjointed sayings, one right after another. But the more you get into them, the more you study them, the more you meditate on them, the more you see there is far more continuity and far more consistency in these Psalms and Proverbs than we ever give them credit for. And so I want you to see that tonight is a very, very short, simple outline. Outline point number one, defend your people against Their enemies. This is the lament. This is what the psalmist is asking for. This is what he's pleading for. Only one verse does he do this. Verse 1 Defend your people against their enemies. Listen to Psalm 43 and then we'll return back to verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation And my God. So much of the Psalms, especially these lament Psalms, are having the psalmist ask God, plead with God, cry out to God, pray to God fervently for deliverance from his enemies. And you find that squarely in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. And defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. The psalmist here isn't asking God to pronounce him or his people as perfect or guiltless in every way. Some people think that. Some people think when it says, Vindicate me, O God, whether it's this psalmist of the sons of Korah or David or some other psalm writer. It's not meaning the idea that I am perfect or I should be vindicated because everything I'm doing is is perfect. Not at all. He isn't saying that he's perfect or guiltless in every way, but he is asking his God to vindicate, which means to declare him and his people in the right against the particular issues of which he's focusing against those who attack them. That's what he's talking about, perhaps both physically and spiritually. He's asking for help against those who are all about doing them in. I want you to notice the two terms he uses here in verse 1, vindicate and defend, vindicate and defend. In the court of public opinion, even when the oppressors of God's people seem to be at their worst, wrangling with and even attempting to injure the people of God, here's a man The psalmist, crying out to the Lord for vindication and defense of those displaced of their homeland. That's that's mainly what's going on here. Because in the homeland of the people of God, the Israelites, that's where the focus of their worship lied. The focus of their worship was Yahweh in His temple. And because they would go to the temple... Not just in festival days and feast days, but they would attempt to make several per year of these days, and they would try to go up to Jerusalem, and they would want to go to the temple, and they would want to worship God in the locus of worship, the center of worship, where Yahweh said He would dwell with His people. And at times, even when that worship occurred, you remember that there was smoke and fire emanating from the temple which was a sure sign that Yahweh was present. And so they longed for these days, and they're not there. They've been displaced from their homeland, and they're pleading for protection against those who would otherwise try to destroy them. And this is a classic lament statement in the Psalter: Come to our aid, O God, and plead my cause against a people who are ungodly. Ungodly people means those people who aren't worshiping any God. They're bloodthirsty. They're zealous for robbery and marauding against innocent people. I was mentioning to my wife the other day that I saw on the news a video clip of a man in an electronics store. And he just walked up to a young man who didn't see him from behind and he just took his fist and he just pummeled the young man on the right side of his cheek from behind, knocked him completely to the ground, took the young boy's cell phone and and took off in an act of just, just sheer robbery and undecency. It was caught, of course, on the security videotape. They later found the assailant they've incarcerated him and I just thought now here's a young man it could be any of us I said to my wife it could have been you it could have been me it could have been any one of our children just walking through an electronic store with a cell phone and someone comes up behind you could have been a fist or it could have been a pipe whatever it might have been and you are so unsuspecting and someone does what they do in such an ungodly way. They don't care about you. They don't care about God. They don't care about the consequences. All they want are the electronics, undoubtedly, to sell them, to make money, to do whatever they want to do. And that's just one small example. This is a, this is a marauding group. This is an enemy force who has probably an unjust man as their leader. That's why it says, against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Maybe that's this group's leader. No wonder the psalmist says, come to our aid, O God. I'm I'm pleading on behalf of our people, our cause for you. We're, We're asking you to plead our cause to these ungodly ones. They're called deceitful. They're called unjust by the psalmist. They live by principles that are antithetical to Yahweh. They don't think about anyone except themselves. They're just intent, it appears, in seeking to destroy the true people of God with taunts and oppression. Do you remember verse 3 in Psalm 42? The psalmist said, My tears have been my food day and night. Why? Why? while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now here's a godly man who wants to worship the Lord. That's his heart. He wants to bring the people into the worship of God. And he's got somebody taunting him because they're not in Jerusalem, they're not at the temple, they're not able to worship in the prescribed way. They may be even trying to run for their lives and they have those who are hurling their taunts, where is your God? Where is He? And then the oppression of the enemy is mentioned in verse 9 of Psalm 42. Because of the oppression of the enemy, as with a deadly wound in my bones, verse 10, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? They are, they are to be contended with. They're to be stopped. They're to, they to be accounted for their ruthlessness. That's what the psalmist is asking for. And when you and I look around at our own world and we see the oppression and persecution of Christians by the ungodly of this world, we can understand why there would be a lament today, Right? Certainly our, our own laments, our own prayers, that's what we need to pray for tonight. We need to pray, lament psalms about those who are being oppressed all around the world just for being a Christian. I don't know if you realize this, but especially in some of these, these hot areas of persecution where these taunts are relentless, there's an attempt to stamp out Christianity from the face of the earth, especially by Islam. Due to the pluralism and inclusivism even of our own day, especially here in the U.S., everything is accepted except one thing, Christianity. Christianity and its purported exclusivism. You see, they talk about their total tolerance of everything else, but when it comes to Christianity and its claims that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father but through Him, John 14:6), they suddenly become the most combined intolerant group in the world. It's true. They can tolerate anything and everything except that they have absolutely no tolerance for those who claim that Jesus is the only way. That's where they draw the line. And this is why we can relate to this psalm, and it's asking for God to deliver us from such hatred and intolerance. So, exactly what is it that you and I are to pray for when we see the persecuted and oppressed around the world? Well, it's for their safety. It's for their stamina. It's for their strength. It's for their honor, even in their martyrdom. Because they've been declaring that Jesus Christ is the only way. Why don't you try to pray something like Psalm 43.1. Lord, vindicate those who are truly yours. Defend their cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver such a Persecuted Christian. Something like that. And when God doesn't appear to you to be answering, what do you do? What do you say? Verse 2, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. You say, wait a minute, I I don't understand that. I mean, at one point, he's saying, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. And then immediately this, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Remember I said last time in Psalm 42, it appears on the page like at one point, He's extolling the God of his refuge. And then the very next thought is, why have you rejected me? And maybe that's due to the fact that if you and I were sensing rejection, that we would say, God, I know you to be the God of refuge, the God of safety, the God of protection. But it doesn't seem to be happening right now. And so there involves patience, and understanding. Yes, this is a God of refuge. A rock of safety for the oppressed. And even though it is not happening right now, I still must trust God that He is who He says He is. And I shall. Do you notice also in these two Psalms how much Psalm 43.2 sounds like Psalm forty two nine? Psalm 43.2, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 42.9, I say to God my rock. That's the rock of refuge. And then this statement, Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Just after saying God's my rock. Because just saying God is my rock doesn't always look like the rock of refuge until He delivers. You can say it, and you can believe it, but sometimes if you don't see it, you still wonder. You want it to be true. You believe it to be true. You've prayed for it. You've believed it. And now you have to have the patience to see it unfold in God's timing. In His timing. It is certainly this way because the intense pressure with what the people of God are under. Intense pressure. You know that God is our refuge, a rock, a fortress, a place of safety, but you revert back immediately to your difficult and seemingly hopeless positions and you lose sight of that rock. And when you do, you begin to question the very goodness of God and you begin to ask questions of why. Why have you forsaken me? You you sometimes can even speak against the God you're appealing to. You can begin to begrudge the fact that He's not answering in your timing and in your way and when you and I don't think he's answering our prayers in the way that he should or in the timing that we expect him to act in delivering us from our pain and sorrow we become no better in character than those who are persecuting us because we're questioning God we're out, saying where is my God where is he what's he doing why is he delaying and you know where that could lead us that could lead us to be questioning even the character of God, the goodness of God. I mean, you and I must remember that as New Covenant believers, when the Jews were involved in their various wilderness wanderings over many, many years, as we read about from our Old Testament, they were often so sorely tempted to take their eyes off the rock and put them back on their horrible circumstances. Isn't it true? I mean, that was 40 years of wandering... And one minute they're saying, yes, we'll worship Yahweh. And then they say, I hate manna. Yes, we love the Lord and we're worshiping Him in the tabernacle. I don't like this pheasant. Or, Moses, our leader, maybe we should go back to Egypt. It wasn't so bad there. Whatever it is. And you know, this is, this is a serious breach in protocol. We ought to be less concerned about our creature comforts and far more concerned about not blaspheming our God. Maybe at times that might be the very reason why those enemies are continuing to be in control. Because God is teaching us a huge object lesson. You want to You want to see this about those wilderness wanderers, those Israelites of old? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is is something for which we need to take heart, even as new covenant believers. And the Apostle Paul tells us to do that very thing, even by looking at the examples of those in the Old Testament as examples for us. Negative examples, to be sure, but examples nonetheless. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, about taking your eyes off the rock of refuge, about off this God who provides safety and shelter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul says to the Corinthians, "...for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers..." that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Remember the cloud of guidance by day and the pillar of fire by night? Remember that? They all passed through the sea. That means that they were all responding to and seeing the rock of their salvation, the rock of their deliverance, the safety of their lives, right? The protector. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was whom? Christ. Christ. None other than the second person of the Godhead. The divine son of God. And then notice The transitionary contrast, verse 5. Nevertheless, I mean, it's all good up to this point, right? It's all positive. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for whom? us, New Covenant believers, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ the rock, to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Then he says a second time, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is a a serious thing, isn't it? God will allow us for a time to lament. We can say, Lord, take up my cause. Take up your people's cause. Defend your people. But we have to be very, very careful that our lament doesn't turn into bitterness and anger and a displacing of God from his role as sovereign to determine the timing, the place, the circumstances. So what do we do? What's the answer to make sure that we're saying God is my refuge and then not fall into the trap of saying, but you've rejected, where are you? Listening to the taunts of where is your God? So that at times we say, yeah, yeah, where is my God? Here's the answer, second outline point, verses 3 and 4. Appeal to the God of light and truth. That's what you have to do. Appeal to the God of light and truth. Verses 3 and 4. Here's his appeal. He writes himself, he doesn't get from a lament position to a bitterness and anger position. He writes himself, even though he said, why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? He writes himself, and he says in verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. He makes an appeal. You see, what you've got to do, my friends, is to go back to the God from whom you may have for a time taken off your eyes. You've got to put your eyes back on the Lord. You've called Him your rock, that rock who is Christ, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, and you called Him your rock because of the intense pressure of your circumstances by going right back. To affirm that He is the place of shelter. He is the place of protection. Even if I don't think currently, that's what I'm experiencing. And when you get there, when you get to that place, you ask Him two things. We need light and truth. Light and truth. And please notice that these two requests, light and truth, are what the psalmist asks for in both his leading and bringing. Do you see it there in verse 3? Let light lead me. Let them, light and truth, bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. I need both. I need light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. You say, that's marvelous. That's marvelous. That's what I ought to be doing. That's the answer. But could you please tell me what light means and truth? What does it mean? Well, in this context, with the Hebrew word light, the light has to do with God granting the fullness of His redemption for His people. He's providing them the light of guidance. The light of guidance so that they can continue their redemptive journey. And that's what we need, right? Right? We need the continual light of guidance from God so that we could continue on in our journey of salvation. You know, we talked this morning about sanctification. And we're on a journey of sanctification, on the pursuit of holiness. And we need the light of the guidance of God for the rest of our redemptive journey. It's a leading of the people of God all the way through the fullness of their redemption. And we would say as New Covenant believers that this is a prayer for God, the Holy Trinity, to lead us in His light through our justification by Jesus Christ, our sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and our glorification by the Father. That's what we're asking for. We need the light of God. You remember when we went through Psalm 36? Psalm 36, and it says in verse 9, For with you, speaking of the Lord, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. You can only see the way when you see it His way. You can only walk in the light when you walk in His light. It could also be here in Psalm 43 that the psalmist, in addition to speaking of a light which dispels the darkness of gloom and terror, it refers to the need of mercy. We need the light of your mercy. We need deliverance. Doesn't he say that all the way back in verse 1? Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Deliver me. We need mercy. That's what sad, despondent people desperately need. People who have lost their way. People who are walking in the misdirection where dark clouds of doubt are overhead. And so we need, all of us, the light of God's mercy to point the way to full redemption. We need Christian on his journey to the celestial city to have the light of guidance So the journey to the celestial city will make him have his way home. And then truth. Do you see the word truth there? That's the Hebrew word emet. Emet. It has to do with the reliable, dependent word of the revelation of God's trustworthiness. That's what it means. It has to do with God's word of covenant faithfulness. His covenant fidelity. God is going to lead us with His light of guidance for mercy and with His truthfulness of fidelity to His plan and purpose. If God says it, it will be brought to pass. Therefore, let Him bring it to us. That's that's what He says here. He says, if I have light and if I have truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me Where? To your holy hill and to your dwelling. And you know what he's saying? If I trust in you and if I believe in you and if I know that you have light and truth, then you, the rock, will lead me where we need to go and where is it that we need to go? Back to our homeland, back to our temple, and back to your dwelling. By the way, the word dwelling is in plural. Back to your dwellings. It means to your very dwelling. It's an area of emphasis. Back to the very locus, the center of worship for the Jews. And that's the temple and that's Yahweh Himself. And if, in fact, Psalm 43.3 says, Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, it may actually be a parallel to chapter 42, verse 8. If the Psalms were together, Notice the parallel in Psalm 42.8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It's a parallel. You say, how so? We need the daylight of God's redemptive guidance and we need the night of truth to sing the song of God's love so that we can go back to the very throne room of worship We can go back to the very altar of God to His dwelling place and give Him glory because He gave us light and truth. When you're unsure of where you're going, if you're unsure of the future, if you're fearful of what lies ahead, what do you need? Light and truth. Light and truth. The psalmist is asking for it. He's asking God to send it out. And God is kind to do so. Why wouldn't he want to send out his light of guidance and his truth of fidelity? Why wouldn't he? I want to have a day of guidance by a steadfast love and a night of song with a prayer to the God of my life. And then we come at the end the very idea of God, our exceeding joy, praising Him with the lyre. Oh, God, my God. He, he gets wrapped up not in the lament, not in the questioning, not in the wondering, and not in the anger and the bitterness that God seems to have rejected him, that God seems to have forgotten him. He says, If you would but give me light and truth to lead me to your place of worship, the holy hill, and to in your very dwelling place, then I'm going to go to your altar, the altar of God, and I'm going to praise the God who is my exceeding joy. Now, can somebody say that who's in abject terror of the future? Probably not. It's probably going to be a very difficult prospect. Because that fear is real. And yet, here he says, If you'll give me light and truth, I'm committed to going to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Why? So that I praise him with the lyre, with the musical instrument, and just praise him, Oh God, my God, oh God, my God. You know what I think that does? It takes us out of lament. And then we go to verse 5. Hope in the God of my salvation. It's that same theme. It's that same crescendo. Hope in the God of my salvation. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. And why are you in turmoil within me? Here's his answer to himself. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We already spoke about that with those other parallel verses, verse 11 and verse 5. And I told you, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke of this very idea of not listening to yourself, but talking to yourself. And here's what Lloyd-Jones says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning, you have not originated them but they are talking to you they bring back the problems of yesterday etc somebody is talking who is talking to you yourself is talking to you now this man's treatment psalm 42 and we could add psalm 43 now this man's treatment was this instead of allowing this self to talk to him he starts talking to himself Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And he does. And what does he say? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. We're going to go to that temple. And and God's going to answer our prayers. And when we go, this is our song. My salvation and my God. My deliverance. He was true to His word. And He gave us the light of His guidance. And He was faithful to His promise. You say, well, what about for some of those who died on the way? They're singing with the Hallelujah Chorus right now. And for those who got back to the temple... This was their testimony. Verse 5 of 42, verse 11 of Psalm 42, and verse 5 of Psalm 43. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You Thank You for challenging us not to listen to ourselves and our fears, but to listen to You as You counsel us. And You're counseling us through Your Word. You're telling us tonight that in our study and now in our collective prayers, hope in God. For I shall again praise Him my salvation, my deliverance, and my God. Father, there is much for which we lament in our world. It's real, it's, it's terrible, it's horrible, it's ghastly, it's murderous. Christians being killed all the day long. Women and children being severely beaten. Some of the women raped. Little children massacred. Even now with ghastly scenes of children with gases poured upon them and deforming them, disfiguring them. Some, having been deformed and disfigured by their own governments and we watch the news and we hear the reports and we we lament and we say vindicate O oh God declare your people in the right deal with the sinners and the bloodthirsty and the deceitful and the unjust and the ungodly defend the cause of Those who've done nothing wrong so as to receive such terrible circumstances. And you will do so in your time and in your way. And we take refuge in you. And when that period of doubt can even immediately come to our minds and We go back to saying, why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We must speak to ourselves, counsel ourselves, plead with you to send out your light and your truth and lead them to lead us lead them to lead us to a place of worship, to a place of prayer, so that we can sing at Your altar, God, my exceeding joy. Praise You with the musical instruments. Saying, "Oh God, my God. Oh yes, we can be Cast down for a moment in our souls we can have turmoil within us we're not robots we're not automatons but we can and must speak to our own souls when fear and terror is all about us and here's our regular refrain hope in God Believe in God. Hope in God. See God for our refuge, our rock, our deliverer, our protector, so that we shall again praise You, whether here or in heaven, and say that my salvation and my God remains true. May it be so. May we pray now with and for each other, even through the laments to a place of quiet confidence that God is still in charge and He will do all His good pleasure. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen.